Hey, Just Thinking family, Virgil here. Want to take a moment just to clue you in on some of the incredible resources from Pastor Joel Webin of Right Response Ministries. Now, Right Response Ministries has made it their goal to resource the body of Christ as a supplement, of course, to the local church. They do so with sermons, with podcasts, with blog articles, and much, much more. Their mission is simple to resource followers of Jesus so that they can confidently engage the culture rather than shrinking back under the fear of man. Right Response Ministries is committed to seeing Christians no longer as merely appeasing the culture, but engaging the culture in a, in a valiant uh, way for sure. As Christians, we, we no longer can afford to simply sit back and attempt to conserve our biblical values. It's time for Christians to mount up with the true gospel courage and fight to win the culture to Christ. Now, to learn more about this great ministry, I want you to head over to justthinking.me forward slash RRM. And that's, that is RRM for Right Response Ministries. Let's get equipped and get to work changing the culture for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Welcome to the Just Thinking Podcast with hosts Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is the Just Thinking Podcast. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. Daryl. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. We we, we on, man. Come on. Oh, 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 man, man. Man, my bad. I was just taking my, I was taking my black power systemic racism nap. You woke me up, man. You better, po- man. You wait. You didn't. You man, didn't you hear. Get... You didn't hear me. You didn't Come read on, no, the you, team. You. <laughs> you didn't read Team Vogue. You didn't Come read on, Team Vogue, man. bro. You didn't read the Team Vogue. I know you just now getting back from vacation, bird, but you only gone over the right, weekend, right. Bro. You didn't read right. the Team Vogue article, man. <laughs> saying that black what you talking power about, nap- man. Dude, black power naps to make up for systemic racism for all the sleep that all our ancestors lost during slavery. I was just taking my black power <laughs> systemic racism nap. <laughs> you just woke me up for my black oh power my systemic God. racism now, bro. Man, you, you, man, you better quit with that nonsense. <laughs> you, you didn't read the Teen Vogue article. Let me quote it for you, bro, because I know you got some catching up to do Help since you're on vacation over the weekend. Teen Vogue said, quote, Black Power Naps is an artistic initiative with components including physical installations, zines, and opera, and more. But it's also a recognition of the hundreds of years of sleep deprivation that Black people and people of color have experienced as a result of systemic racism, a way to push back against the false stereotype that Black people are lazy and an investigation of the inequitable distribution of rest, the lack of sleep, 
has serious consequences, unquote. So, man, you just oh woke me up from my gosh. black power systemic racism nap, dude. <laughs> I'm at a complete... I don't even have words for this nonsense, man. I Listen, here's the crazy part. I thought the, I thought, I thought the world was upside down. I thought the world was absolutely upside down before I left. It has gone... If, if if it could be turned inside out, I mean, this is absolutely unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Man, you know, this is this is just one of those stories, man, where you just have to treat it with for the absurdity that it is, man. I mean, right, it, it right. is. I mean, it, it just is. I know I know we're not here to talk about Teen Vogue, bro, but I just thought I just cannot let this go. <laughs> Black power naps, bro. Who Make knew? Up for systemic systemic racism, power, black power naps, man. Who you you need knew? to you you when you get back to work, you need to demand. Right. demand. You need to demand time for your black power systemic racism nap, bro. Man. And take and and get your sleep, player. <laughs> get your sleep. They owe you, bro. Oh my gosh! Oh my Z's. goodness! Unbelievable! This is unbelievable, man. Anyway, well, we're, we're not here to talk. We're not, we're not here to talk about that, man. We got we got to we got to definitely got to keep it moving. <laughs> we got to keep it moving. But listen, man, I just want to say, man, it's glad to be back behind the mic with you, bro. How was your oh, vacation, bro. man? It it was nice, man. I, I I did take me some power naps. None of it had anything to do with black <laughs> systemic racism, but uh, <laughs> but but I I did I did get a bunch of rest man which I was really really glad for got a chance to relax took the whole family man we just kind of took a little break and uh and kind of un, un, just unwound a, a bit and uh back in the saddle we took like I think we left Thursday did a Friday Saturday Sunday Monday thing and got back wanted to get back in time so that I can get with you and uh we could record a, an episode of the Just Thinking podcast excited about it man uh, again when when I saw the uh, the meme that we're going to discuss the, uh, the 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 info that we're gonna we're gonna walk through. I, I don't want to I don't want to tip the hat too much as to what we're gonna what we're gonna do. I'll let you do the I'll let you do the honors of that. But but I thought, man, I cannot wait to do it. This is kind of when I thought about you said a freestyle episode puts me in the mind of uh, the episodes that you and I used to do. Like I'd say around episode twenty, episode thirty, we take a we take an article or something. You'd send me, hey, read this, be ready to to, to unpack it, and uh, uh, you know do some exegesis of this, and we'll we'll compare it to to scripture. So it kind of put me in the mind of that that kind of a flavor. So the so so the folks who are listening to us today are going to get a flavor for maybe you know we're we're, we're at episode one hundred, I think. Yeah, this is uh, episode so, one hundred, bro. Yeah, so they're gonna they're gonna get a flavor for what it was like around episode twenty or so, uh, but with with a, with a little bit more thoughtfulness, I think to it. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm excited about our time together, man. Yeah, th- th- this episode is gonna be a lot like what we were before we got nicknames, right? Before I <laughs> right, started, right. <laughs> before you became Omaha, you were still Omaha, Virgil, right? Right, and then right, before right. people start trying to call me Hollywood, before I moved right. out here to 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 Southern California, but. Uh, but yeah, man. Right. Well, welcome back, bro. And I'm telling you, Bert, you're coming back behind the mic, man, at the best time, bro. Because bro, waiting this is crazy. <laughs> waiting for you was this infographic from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. 
entitled, quote, Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States, unquote. How's that for a title, bro? How's that for a title? It's insane. Insane. In fact, man, it's a throwback to the 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 um episode we did on whiteness it it reminds yes. me of that and 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 i was i was watching kind of some of the some of the twitter f- feed and that kind of thing and noticed that that you know some of the great folks who who do work behind the scenes for us miss rachel and 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 charles and some of the other folks that that that, that do work with us they were mm-hmm. they joe don't let me forget joe they they were they were picking up the uh, the quotes from the whiteness episode and you'd have thought that we were addressing some of the issues, you know, that were popping up today. Yeah. A matter of fact, to our listeners, uh, if you've not had an opportunity yet to listen to our episode titled whiteness, you really need to listen to that episode really. And we'll have a, we'll have a link to that episode in the show notes for the episode we're recording uh, this evening. But if you've not listened to the whiteness episode, you ought to yourself to go out and listen to the episode. I promise you, you will not, regret it but uh you know omaha i gotta tell you when i came across this infographic from the national museum of african-american history and culture aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the united states the first thing that popped into my mind was the quote uh, quote from booker t washington from his autobiography up from slavery where washington said this quote he said there's a class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles the wrongs and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. There is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well, unquote. Mm. I was Booker T. Washington from his autobiography, Up From Slavery, which, by the way, every single American household should own a copy and read. Any comments on those words from uh, Booker T. Burge? They they could not be more apropos for what we're seeing today. I mean, it's it's on it's on the daily basis. It's on a daily basis that that the grievance grievance culture, uh, cancel culture, uh, you know, social justicians want to the the woke scold want to constantly of how pitiful. And sad and 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 just a, a mess. Black folk are every day. Mm-hmm, in fact, mm-hmm. how things are actually worse today than they were in the days of slavery. Right. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So Unbelievable. Let's, let's let's start diving into this infographic. And for those of you who may not be familiar with this document, again, it's produced by the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's titled "Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness." and white culture in the United States. Now, the document was first made available on the NMAAHC website, but it's no longer there. Yeah, okay, I noticed go, that. Go, fig, go figure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? Yeah. So it's no longer there, but we're going to break this uh, document down for you. And what we're going to do in this episode, there are 14 main headings uh, that appear on this infographic with sub bullets under each main heading. Now, what Virgil and I endeavor will endeavor to do in this episode is to touch on each of the 14 main headings without touching on any of the sub bullets per se. But we're going to look at each of these 14 main headings and try to look at them objectively through the lens of both scripture and history. I mean, I thought it was 
apropos to do that, Omaha, given that the document was produced, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture to actually try to integrate some African-American history and culture in our, shall we say, as objective as possible critique Mm -hmm. and review of this infographic. So for those who are our listeners who are not familiar with this document, let me go ahead and read what pretty much serves as their abstract here at the top of the document, right? right? Quote, this is from the NMAAHC document aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. Quote, white dominant culture or whiteness. We have to pronounce that H right. Um, Whiteness (laughs) refers to the way white people and their traditions attitudes and ways of life have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practices in the United States. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have all internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color, unquote. What? Now, I want to stop oh right there, gosh. Omaha, because I want to deconstruct that phrase "people of color" at the end of that, yeah. uh, at the end of that, of that abstract that I just quoted from the from their uh, infographic, and, and and this is going into a huge pet peeve of mine, a huge pet peeve of mine mm-hmm. about how we continue. Now, we we would I would expect the culture and the world to to conflate, uh, either naively or not, to conflate terms like race and ethnicity but that's a pet peeve and you know this probably better than anyone Omaha. that's yeah, when, we, yeah, when we're talking yeah. about such issues as what we're discussing in this episode that's got to be my biggest pet peeve right there that there is a level of mm-hmm. ignorance and it seems that the chasm can, is, is widening as it relates to the ignorance that people have i don't say that condescendingly i say ignorance in the in the in the sense of an unawareness or being uneducated right. about something there's an ignorance about right. the distinction between race and ethnicity. So I want to deconstruct mm-hmm. the very last part of that quote that I just read from the uh, info- infographic on whiteness, where that includes the phrase people of color. Okay. Now I want to be, I want to do that by quoting the renowned theologian, Frederick Douglass. You guys didn't know Frederick Douglass was a theologian, did you? Well, you're going to find out in this episode that he was probably a better theologian than many theologians today. So I want to quote Mm -hmm. from uh, Frederick Douglass and a message he delivered, excuse me, a message that Frederick Douglass delivered on July 12th, 1854, July 12th, 1854 titled the claims of the Negro ethnologically considered. Okay. The claims of the Negro ethnologically considered. Consider, but before I read this quote from Douglas, I want our listeners to note that entitling his message "The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered," Douglas not only accurately but biblically uses the term mm-hmm. ethnologically, not racially. Okay, Douglas didn't title mm-hmm. his uh, his speech "The Claims of the Negro Racially Considered." No, he accurately mm-hmm. and biblically titled. He used the term ethnologically considered, not racially considered. Mm-hmm. Now, why do I say that? Because in this speech, Douglas leverages the truth of Acts 17, 26. 
where it reads, God made from one man, that man is Adam, every nation to live on the face of the earth, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. We've used that verse here so often, Omaha, I've got it pretty much memorized. The word nation in Acts 17, 26 is the Greek noun ethnos, from where we get our English word ethnicity. Okay, so so it is on that basis that I say Douglas is a better exegete than many theologians today because he knew from Acts 17, 26 that the proper term to use in titling his address as he did was the term ethnologically, not racially. Okay, but I want to quote from Frederick Douglass, and this is going to help us, I hope. Put an end to this use of race when what we really mean is ethnicity. In his message, The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered, Frederick Douglass said this, quote, Only about one-fifth of all the inhabitants of the globe are white, and they are as far from the Adamic complexion as the Negro. The, the remainder are what? Ranging all the way from the brunette to jet black. There are the red, the reddish copper color, the yellowish, the dark brown, the chocolate color, and so on to the jet black. On the mountains of the north of Africa, where water freezes in winter at times, branches of the same people who are black in the valley are white in the mountains. The Nubian, with his beautiful curly hair, finds it becoming frizzled, crisp, and even woolly as he approaches the Great Sahara. The Portuguese, white in Europe, is brown in Asia. The Jews, who are to be found in all countries, never intermarrying, are white in Europe, brown in Asia, and black in Africa. Again, what does it all prove? Nothing, absolutely nothing, which places the question beyond dispute. But it does justify the conjecture before referred to that outward circumstances do not miss this, folks. Douglas says outward circumstances may have something to do with modifying the various phases of humanity and that color itself is at the control of the world's climate and its various concomitants. Listen to this. Listen to how J Douglas closes this. It is the sun that paints the peach. And may it not be that the sun paints the man as well? Unquote. That was Frederick Douglass from 1854 in a message entitled The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered. Now, Douglass's thesis that the color of our skin, that is the degree of melanin that each of us possesses is a direct result of where we live on the globe. His thesis is supported by a National Geographic article from April 2018 titled There is no scientific basis for race. It's a made up label. Again, this is National Geographic from April 2018. There is no scientific basis for race. It's a made-up label. Now, listen to what I'm about to read from that National Geographic article up against what Frederick Douglass just said. It is the sun that paints the peach. And may it not be that the sun paints the man as well, Douglass asked. Quoting from the National Geographic article, there is no scientific basis for race. Quote, what the genetics show is that mixture and displacement have happened again and again, and that our pictures of past, quote, racial structures, unquote, are almost always wrong, says David Reich, 
a Harvard University paleogeneticist. There are no fixed traits associated with specific geographic locations, Reich says, because as often as isolation has created differences among populations, migration and mixing have blurred or erased them. Across the world today, skin color is highly variable. Much of the difference correlates with latitude, Reich says. Much of the difference correlates with latitude. Near the equator, lots of sunlight makes dark skin a useful shield against ultraviolet radiation. Towards the poles, where the problem is too little sun, paler skin promotes the production of vitamin D. Several genes work together to determine skin tone and different groups may possess any number of combinations of different tweaks. Among Africans, some people, such as the Mursi of Ethiopia, have skin that's almost ebony, while others, such as the Khoisan, have skin the color of copper. Many dark-skinned East Africans, researchers were surprised to learn, possess the light-skinned variant of the gene SLC24A5. It seems to have been introduced to Africa, just as it was to Europe from the Middle East. East Asians, for their part, generally have light skin, but possess the dark skin version of the gene. When people speak about race, usually they seem to be referring to skin color and at the same time to something more than skin color. This is the legacy of people such as craniometrist Dr. Samuel Morton, who developed the quote-unquote science of race to suit his own prejudices and got the actual science totally wrong. Science today mm -hmm. tells us, listen to this, uh, these last couple sentences. Science today tells us that the visible differences between peoples are accidents of history. And Dr. Rice closes with this. They reflect how our ancestors dealt with sun exposure and not much else. Unquote. Right. <laughs> now, here you have National Geographic, the science of National Geographic, supporting what Frederick Douglass argued in 1854. Mm -hmm. that, that your melanin, the melanin that you possess is not race. It's not this. It does not point to your race. It has everything to do with where you live on the planet. Latitude, okay? This is we have science backing this up. Any thoughts on this, Omaha? Well, couple couple of thoughts. One is that I, let me first start with. I have so many thoughts that I have. Let me let me first start with what you're sharing here, which is, and I think it's a great point to make, and and that is the the National Geographic article unpacks the reality that all of this idea behind race is is a, is a made up social con social constructs social it's cultural stupid. construct it's, it's, it's stupid a stupid social construct absolutely Root, and, rooted and, in darwinism absolutely and and which which is the point that i'm about to make you you got you got samuel morton and his craniometry in, in about the 1830s which really doesn't pick up any any foundation until 1859 and in 1859, that's the point at which you have Darwin's Origin of Species. And, and the title of the book is The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored 
races in the struggle for life. It's important to have that full t- that full title because it's at that point that alongside Samuel Morton's craniometry comes comes along, you know, the 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 the, the uh, Darwin's uh, origin of the species, and it and and it goes through throughout the culture to the point where we begin to pick up. In fact, that's that same article that you quoted from says that that's the point at which we end up getting scientific racism. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really pseudoscience is what it actually is, but that, that's, that's where we, that's where we end up picking it up from. So I, I think that's problematic. I think it's a point that, that is powerfully made in the section that you just covered. The thing that I had issue, I know you picked up the people of color on the on the on the bottom end, because I knew when I saw that I said, I know exactly where he's gonna go because I already know what, what my brother's pet peeve is. My issue was the fact that where it started. The mm-hmm. sentence starts out by saying white dominant culture or whiteness. And and unfortunately now, nowadays in our in our in our culture Saying the word white is, is almost a pejorative. I mean, it, it's 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 almost a cuss word to say white. It, there's, there's the presupposition if something is white, it's it's inherently sinful. It's inherently bad. It's inherently depraved. It's inherently I mean, a, a, according to according to Nick Cannon, it's almost animalistic. Right. It's closer mm-hmm. to it's closer to animalistic behavior than it is human behavior to 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 to, to be sure. And so they start out with the presupposition in the article, knowing like Pavlov's dog, if they say white dominant culture or whiteness, that you're going to have a, a a predictable reaction to that that is negative in context. So from there, mm-hmm. rather than saying American culture, rather than saying successful culture, rather than say you say white dominant or you say whiteness. And you're off to the races, right? And and, and they and mm-hmm. they know that. And so I thought that was the part of the sentence structure that I that I found incredibly problematic from the beginning because they they are within the language is power packed presuppositions that we've been educated by for decades now. See, I mean, critical race theory is embedded in the very thought process that most young people have, which is why we see them uh, out in the streets like they are with regard mm-hmm. to the with regard to issues of. Of, of quote unquote race. Right. Yeah. And so now that they've got that now that now that the education system has done a job on us, they know that they can now just say specific words and we'll have an automatic response to it. So it, it, those those are the thoughts I had. One was with regard to the commentary that you just gave that. And, and I, all I wanted to do with that was simply add. It makes sense that um, that Fe- Frederick Douglass said what he said. He said that in, in 1854. 1854. It would Eighteen fifty-four. Is that correct? Yep. So you, you, correct. you wouldn't have you wouldn't have Darwinian Darwinian evolution and the and the origin of species wouldn't happen until eighteen fifty-nine, which is where which is where we see the, the the departure from from a biblical truth, from a biblical anthropology, from a biblical thought process about who man is, and and so now Darwin comes in. Five years later, and gives you the idea of races alongside Samuel Morton's craniometry. And 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 you and and it's and it creates a problem. It creates a complete problem that we that we see now unfolding today. You know, Verge, you um you mentioned in that excellent breakdown, the excellent commentary that you guys just gave you, you mentioned uh, briefly the public education system. You know, public schools. <laughs> right. We're gonna have a little bit right. to say about that later on when I talk about Mr. John Dewey. But what right. I want to <laughs> go back to is what you said about. <clears throat> What you said about how our, our uh, the the schools are now in, in indoctrinating our children and inculcating yes. 
uh, into yes. their lesson plans, critical race theory. And what I'm also yes. seeing, though, in the in the uh, in society today is that we're raising a generation of very angry young people. Very yes. angry young people who who feign to know about the history of uh, institutions such as slavery. But th- th- really, they, they have no clue. You have people no, today, you no. have you have young people today who are are lining up to buy iPhone 12s, lining up to buy Jordan, Air Jordan sneakers for $300 to $600 a pop, mm-hmm. buying designer clothes, designer Apple watches, uh, you know, um, Fendi uh, bags, all, 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 all kind of perks of growing up in America, yet they're angry. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know a right. single young person who ever had the experience that Booker T. Washington had, who no, born a slave, no. born a slave, <clears throat> born a slave, didn't sleep on a mattress until he was eight years old. Right. Slept for his first eight years of his life on a dirt floor as a slave. Okay? Mm-hmm. And yet you have a generation of young people out here angry. Angry. Mm-hmm. And they don't, and, and in their ignorance, they don't even know why they're angry. They're, they're just being no. taught that they need to be angry. You need to hate white people. You need to hate everything about white people. You need to hate, hate every historical institution that white people had anything to do with. And you need to be angry. Mm-hmm. And then they're, then they're lying to them on top of teaching them to be angry. They're lying to them that their anger is righteous. So, some, somebody cue up my Hammond. Somebody please cue up the mascot. They're, they're, they're <laughs> lying to them. They're yeah. lying to them. All right. Saying it's okay to be angry. And that your anger is that your anger is rooted in righteous di- indignation. You see, so no, so no, we we got a bunch of young people out here. Some of them haven't even graduated high school. Yet they're ang- yet they're angry. angry, angry for what? At what? I mean, seriously, I have no idea what they're angry. You know, it amazes me how gullible. The church, especially because I listen, when we get behind the mics, our primary audience is the church. I I I I expect the world to act like fools. Right. I expect the world to be gullible. But the church continues to be gullible on this matter of what the world calls race. When even science has rejected the notion there is that there is such a thing as biological race. And then the church continues to peddle. The church continues to peddle and promote books. And other resources about "quote unquote" race and "quote unquote" racism mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. built on a fault, faulty hermeneutic that defines race solely in terms of skin color or some other paradigm of ethnic epistemology. And, and, right. and, and the church, the church needs to wake up. You're being used. You're being played, and you've been played for decades, as you pointed out, Omaha. This whole lie about race is is an outgrowth of of Darwinian evolution. Mm-hmm. You've been you've been lied to for decades. But anyway, let me get off man, my hammer, t- man. <laughs> <laughs> let me get off you my hammer, a, bro. You 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 just took us to church, man. <laughs> man. Let's dig let's dig into this infographic. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. Aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States produced by the National Museum of African American 
history and culture. All right. Main heading number one was rugged individualism. Rugged individualism is whiteness. Oh rugged individualism God. is whiteness. Okay, let's dig into this. Okay, so the term rugged individualism is said to have originated with Herbert Clark Hoover, who as president of the United States will go on to preside over the oncoming uh, Great Depression. <clears throat> on October 22nd, 1928, Herbert Hoover gave a campaign speech in New York City that has become known as the rugged individualism speech. And in that speech, Hoover said this, quote, during the war, that is World War I, we necessarily turned to the government to solve every difficult economic problem. The government having absorbed every energy of our people for war, there was no other solution. When the war closed, the most vital of all issues both in our country and throughout the world was whether governments should continue their wartime ownership and operation of many instrumentalities of production and distribution. We were challenged with a peacetime choice between the American system of rugged individualism and a European philosophy of diametrically opposed doctrines, doctrines of paternalism and state socialism. Wow. The acceptance of these ideas would have meant the destruction of self-government through centralization of government. It would have meant the undermining of the individual initiative and enterprise through which our people have grown to unparalleled greatness. There has been revived in this campaign, however, a series of proposals which, if adopted, would be a long step toward the abandonment of our American system and a surrender to the destructive operation of governmental conduct of commercial business, unquote. Now, I wonder how many of our listeners have ever heard that term rugged individualism used in that in that context, in the context of the speech that Herbert Clark Hoover gave back in 1928. And see, this is what's so important. You and I talk about this all, all the time, Omaha. We talk about context all the mm -hmm. time. So Absolutely. the National Museum of African-American History and Culture just throws this on here. Hey, rugged individualism, that's whiteness that the individual is the primary unit, self-reliance, independence, and autonomy. Well, that, that whole term of rugged individualism, now you just heard me quote from Herbert Hoover, who would go on to become president that following month in a speech he gave in October of 1928. Now you just heard from, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a direct quote from Herbert Hoover for where that term originally was used and in the context in which it was used it was he was making an argument mm -hmm. against government control and socialism right, right. this right. has nothing to do with whiteness and racism and and white culture thoughts omaha couple thoughts man this this is incredible that that this organization would pull this idea out rugged individualism which is which is a uniquely American. I mean, there 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 are Caucasians all over the world, right? I mean, definitely portions of Europe, which which you know it, it include uh, even even areas of, of of Russia, Germany, and the like. Those cultures did not; they were white cultures, did not possess the idea of rugged individualism. 
Why? Because they were they were beholden to Marxian ideas, to Stalinistic ideas, to Marxist theory. I mean, this this these ideas are not unique to anyone's skin color. <laughs> this, this is an this idea is, that's connected to. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just saying this is this is ridiculous. It is. This is it ridiculous. Is, man. Is. This is. Go, an, ahead, go ahead and finish the this, thought, bro. This is a, this is an idea that's connected to American exceptionalism. This has everything to do with us as Americans and, 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 and the appeal that is that is actually being made by Herbert Herbert Hoover uh, in the campaign speech. This is an appeal to that which is uniquely American, it had nothing to do with ethnicity, exactly. had everything to do with the, with with an, with an appeal to American culture, to American exceptionalism and to that which was opposite what was happening in in which that which was opposite the, what was happening in in Germany and in places like that where where people were dependent upon government government did this government did that government ran all all kinds of economic structures and systems and the appeal here is to f- for the individual if if anything this 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 appeal to to rugged individualism is a benefit to all to to, to people of every ethnicity oh I need some hammer right here I need some hammer B three right here. Omaha, can you can you start that thought again, bro? That was so nice. I'm gonna ask you to say it twice. Yeah, the the, I, the idea of rugged individualism is not unique to ethnicity. In fact, it helps every single ethnicity. It, it helps every person, regardless of race. I mean, that's no no one has helped more. No one has helped more by rugged individualism than the black man. No one has helped more (laughs) by rugged individualism than the black man. We, we, right now we are suffering. Look, right now we are suffering because of our dependency upon government. Democrats take it for granted. So, so much so that that we had, we had a vice presidential, uh, uh, not candidate, our our, our vice president say, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. That's depend. You talk about sole dependence upon government. That's sole yep. dependence upon government. Now, rugged individualism gets you off of 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 the dependency on government and allows you to step stand on your own two feet. That's that's all I'll say about that, man. Well, and you heard you heard when I read from Herbert Hoover, he mentioned the fact that one of the problems what was problematic about that whole worldview is that you get you get so acc- acclimated to uh, government control that you develop this Absolutely. paternalistic view of government. Government was never meant to provide you with cradle to grave subsistence. It never was. But when you look right. at it objectively, you know, Omaha, this idea of rugged individualism is not rooted in whiteness or white culture. It's based in a universal idea of free market capitalism and the free exchange of commerce as opposed to some paternalistic view of government that's rooted in and grounded in socialism. Now, we've done done a couple episodes on socialism. So this is right. This is not foreign territory to the Just Thinking podcast. Okay, matter of fact, one of our episodes that we did, we broke down and we exposited seven different types of socialism. Okay, Mm -hmm. so when we talk about this, we know what we're talking about. But as I see it, this all has less to do with the idea of rugged individualism being a matter of whiteness or white culture. It has more to do with the question as human beings. Okay. As human beings, as image bearers of God, who did God create us to be? And in what ways are we to reflect the Imago Dei reality in the world? All right. 
That's the bigger question for me in terms of rugged individual. It has all everything to do with who God created us to be, how he created us to represent his image in the world. All right. Now, to answer that question, I want to go to the 20th century Dutch reformed theologian Herman Bavik, who in volume one of his book, Reformed Ethics, subtitled Created, Fallen and Converted Humanity. Herman Bavink answers that question. Okay, he answers the question. Who did God create us to be as his image bears in the world? How do we live that out? Bavink said this, quote, questions about human beings are, I'm sorry, let me, let me begin. Questions about human being are where they are headed and the end and purpose of their existence depend on the answer to a prior question. Where did human beings come from? Origin determines direction and purpose. Okay, don't miss that, listeners. Bavink says origin determines direction and purpose. There is a big difference between saying that human beings are the image and offspring of the chimpanzee and orangutan and saying, excuse me, and saying they are the image and offspring of God. Between saying human beings are from below and saying they are from above, without the Bible, it is impossible to answer the question of where human beings are from. And thus, no answer can be given to the question of what they are or where they are headed. One can only surmise, suspect, presuppose, and philosophize. Ethics, in the true sense of the word, does not exist within a Darwinian framework, Bavink says. Every view of human beings starts from an axiom, a point of departure, a proposition of faith or hypothesis. This is the case with Darwin as well. His proposition of faith is that a human being is an evolved animal. For us, on the other hand, by faith, we understand that human beings are created in the image of God and are God's offspring. That's Acts 17, 28. For in him, that is in God, we live and move and exist so that's where that's the text that Baving is referencing there when he says that by faith we understand that human beings are created in the image of God and are God's offspring. Baving continues, this has to be a fixed and controlling principle when we examine humankind. When 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 Bavik says this, he means the idea that human beings are created in the image of God and are God's offspring. He's saying that that has to be a fixed and controlling principle when we examine humankind, a presupposition that governs all further reflection, Bavink says. He continues, to call human beings God's image is to say that the human person is God's likeness, his portrait in miniature, his imprint, his effigy or ectype. The image of God is the human similarity to God, whereby we display in our own creaturely way the highest perfection of God. We are God's image with respect to all our existence in the soul with all its capabilities, thinking, feeling, willing, and also in the body. And Bavink closes with this. He says, the image of God therefore exists in three ways. Number one, in the essence of our humanity with soul and body and substrate. Number two, 
in the capacities and abilities that it, that of that essence, knowing, feeling, willing, and acting. And then thirdly, in the properties and gifts of that essence and their capabilities, holiness, knowledge, righteousness. So again, as we unpack this assertion by the NMAAHC that, quote, rugged individualism, unquote, is a product of whiteness and white culture, from a biblical perspective, the issue is that we are created in the image of God. And consequently, one of the ways that we are ref to reflect God's image in the world is that we are to work. We are to work mm -hmm. so as to provide not only for ourselves and our own needs, but the needs of others as well. Now, I want to back that up, Omaha, with several scripture passages, but is there anything you want to add before I take us through these texts uh, here in a second? No. I'll quickly add this and get out of your way. And that is, I, I love what you did with using uh, uh, Bavink's dogmatic. And, and what what it, as you and I have had the opportunity, man, to speak in a lot of different spaces and places, what's become incredibly evident to me uh, and, and, and probably to you as well, is how little the church spends time really unpacking um, biblical anthropology, biblical ecclesiology mm -hmm. and, and and really and really uh, and really walking through systematic theology and how how important it is for times like this this we normally think of this as we normally think of systematic theology as something boring and dull and kind of kind of mm -hmm. for the for the egghead for the nerds but but this this has real world practical application as the culture is trying to redefine very simple ideas like who is man uh, mm -hmm. and, and and what is ethnicity and th those kinds of things are important so so as 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 you heard daryl i'm I'm speaking directly to our listeners now as you heard Daryl mention the the twentieth century Dutch reformed theologian herman herman bavink b a v i n c k go grab the volume, go get mm -hmm. the work unpack mm -hmm. it. it the book is reformed ethics created fallen and converted humanity. Go grab that and be ready to teach it to your children's children so that they know and understand and aren't duped by the culture. That's all I'll say about that. Yeah, so this idea, again, of rugged individualism that the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture says is essentially uh, prejudice. I, I hate the word racist. I don't, I don't even want to use that word anymore. But for the sake of conversation, I'll use it. But So, so they're tying rugged individualism to a prejudicial uh, principle and precept. And what I'm trying to tie it to is the, is, is number one, the Imago Dei, and then by extension, how the image of God, how are we as human beings, as, as image bearers of God, how are we to, to represent his image in the world? And one of the ways we do that is by working. So what the, what the uh, NMAAHC criticizes as rugged individualism and basically is uh, 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 declaring that uh, individual responsibility is a is a byproduct of, of of some racist paradigm. No, the Bible calls that work. Okay, so I just want to go through several scriptures to to sort of support my argument here. Ephesians four twenty eight: He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one. Who has need? Psalm chapter 90, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. 
Proverbs 12, verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty mm. of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor, there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. You guys getting the point here? I'm trying to drive home with this whole rugged individual, the, the absurdity that rugged individualism is, is racist. Why? Genesis yeah. chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares, listen to these verbs, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. Verse nine, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? So the the writer here is talking about laziness. He's talking about laziness. Mm -hmm. Verse 10, Mm -hmm. a little sleep, a little slumber, and a, a little folding of the hands to rest. Verse 11, your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. So I would argue to the NMAHC that the opposite of rugged individualism is laziness. What, what, mm-hmm. what would you have us do? Either work or not work. Provide for Do what we can to provide for ourselves or, or, or depend on the government for largesse. Okay? Second right. Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. The hardworking man ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10b through 11. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition. Now, listen to this. I don't know if there can be a, a, a more profound verse against the idea that rugged, individualism, uh, rugged individualism is bad than 2 Thessalonians 3. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 10 and 11. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition. Okay? Strive for this. Make this your goal, your objective, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and what? And work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you. Mm, that's good. So that you would follow our example. By what? Working. So you can pay for your own way not being a burden to individuals or to the government for that matter. The principle here applies to both. Verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 13. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Leviticus 23, 3, for six days, work may be done. Exodus 20, verse 9, six days you shall labor 
and do all your work. So all this to say that what the NMAAHC is referring to as prejudicial, rugged individualism, the Bible calls that the principle of work and individual responsibility. Okay. Absolutely. It's it's the universal principle of reaping and sowing. If you're Mm -hmm. able to work, you should work. If you're able to work yet choose to not work, you should expect the consequences. It's called reaping and sowing. Okay. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God is not mocked. That which a person sows, he shall also reap. Okay. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Proverbs eleven eighteen: the wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets the true reward. Proverbs 22, 8, he, he who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. Psalm 126, 5, those who sow in tears will reap with joyful sound uh, shouting. So the principle here is universal. You reap what you sow. So what this organization is calling whiteness and white culture, racism, rugged individualism is absurd. Listen, I want to quote Booker T. Washington here real quick, Omaha, then I'll throw it over to you before we go to our second item in this uh, discussion. Booker T. Washington said this, quote, the circumstances that surround a man's life are not important. How that man responds to those circumstances is what's important. His response to his circumstances is the ultimate determining factor between success and failure. Unquote. Wow. Omaha, what you got, man? That that is so polar opposite. The words the words you just quoted from Booker T. Washington are so polar opposite what kids in school systems are being taught right now. Um, and, and in fact, I, I was I was looking around uh, kind of my geographical area here in Omaha to find out what the what the plans were for this fall. And what I'm coming to find is that more and more school systems have the intent of 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 uh, of putting in their curriculum as required reading white fragility, Robin DiAngelo's mm-hmm. white fragility. And, and I mean, that, that's a book that is absolutely c- counters everything that that Booker T. Washington just stated and offers mm-hmm. every excuse in the book for every scripture that you just read, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, the, yep. the, the excuse for, for not, for not doing well, for not succeeding is a, is systemic racism, right? And so because there's systemic racism, there's systemic injustice aimed directly and specifically at black people, they can't achieve. And the only way that they do well is by others pointing out the 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 hurdles in life that they have and and offering up their benevolence right their beneficence i mean that that's mm-hmm. that's what's that's what's being offered by robin d'angelo's white fragility and 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 the, the fact that if if a white person is uncomfortable hearing about how they've oppressed black people it's because they're too fragile to 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 handle the truth i mean that's what's mm-hmm. being taught and that's what's going to ha- that in the fall this fall School systems around the country are going to be drinking this nonsense down like water. Mm-hmm. And kids are going to be coming home angry at their parents for, mm-hmm. for something they had no they had no ability to change, which was the level of melanin in their skin. Right. Right. It's a great point, Omaha. You know, and again, uh, to our listeners, that was just point number one of this document. Rugged individualism. <laughs> That was just point number one. Okay. 
Let's right. move on to heading number two. The National Museum of African American History and Culture is saying that family structure, nuclear family structure, is a byproduct of whiteness and white culture. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. The National Museum of African American History and Culture says a traditional family structure is a byproduct of whiteness and white culture. Now, I want to point back about 45 years ago, 55 years ago, to a document called the Moynihan Report. The Moynihan Mm -hmm. Report. The Moynihan Report, subtitled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. This document was produced in 1955. I think it had, uh, the document itself, I believe, uh, uh, records the results of a study that had been conducted for several years prior. Okay, mm-hmm. but the document itself right. was produced in 1965. Okay, so what I want to do is read from the Moynihan report to debunk the assertion that nuclear traditional family structure is racist. And I want to quote from this document to give the NMAAHC some context, some historical context as to what the destruction of the nuclear family has done to black people in America. Quote from the Moynihan Report, 1965, quote, the fundamental problem in which this is most clearly the case is that of family structure. So let me stop there. The fundamental problem that this report is speaking of is primarily the socioeconomic impact of the destruction of the family structure in black America. I put black America in quotes. Okay. That's what this report is addressing, but they're saying that their results have found that the fundamental problem that led and leads to this sort of economic disparity is the destruction of the family unit. Okay. To begin again, quote, the fundamental problem in which this is most clearly the case is that of family structure, the role of the family in shaping character and ability is so pervasive as to be easily overlooked. The family, I'm reading from the Moynihan Report here, listeners, the family is the basic social unit of American life. It is the basic socializing unit. By and large, adult conduct in society is learned as a child. The evidence, not final, but powerfully persuasive, is that the Negro family in the urban ghetto is crumbling. A middle-class group has managed to save itself, but for vast numbers of the unskilled, poorly educated city working class, the the fabric of conventional social relationships has all but disintegrated. There are indications that the situation may have been arrested in the past few years, but the general post-war trend is unmistakable. So long as this institution, that is, so long as the situation, rather, so long as the situation of family disintegration persists, the cycle of poverty and disadvantage will continue, unquote. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch that last sentence? Mm-hmm. Moynihan report mm-hmm. says, so long as this situation of family disintegration persists, the cycle of poverty and disadvantage will continue. Now, at the time that this report was released, Nearly 25% of black women living in, in cities who have never, who, who have ever married, rather, 25% of Negro women living in cities who have 
ever married are divorced, separated, or are living apart from their husbands. Nearly one quarter of black births, birth rates were illegitimate. Okay, so 25% of black birth rates were illegitimate. Nearly 25% of Negro families is headed by females. This is in 1965 when the Moynihan Report was released. 14% of Negro children received public assistance as against only 2% of white children. Now, the Moynihan Report goes on to say this, quote, the steady expansion of the welfare state can be taken as a measure of the disintegration of the Negro family structure over the past generation in the United States. Continuing, divorce is expensive, the report says. Divorce is expensive. Those without money resort to separation and desertion. While divorce is not a desirable goal for a society, can, can, let me stop right there. Can you imagine somebody's the reaction to somebody to, to somebody saying that in, in right. 2020 today? Right, right, right. In 1965, the Moynihan Report says, while divorce is not a desirable goal for society, it recognizes, listen to this, it recognizes the importance of marriage and family and for children, some family continuity and support is more likely when the institution of the family has been so recognized. So recognize meaning, meaning when society recognizes the importance of the institution of the family, the children benefit mm-hmm. and society benefits as a whole. But li- listen to these statistics today up against those statistics that I just read from 1965. Today in 2020, approximately 77% of black births are to black single mothers are the single mothers. 77%, that's almost eight out of every 10 babies born is born to a single mother in black neighborhoods. Less than 39% of black children under the age of 18 live with both parents. That's only four out of 10. Four out of every 10 black children live with both parents. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, although blacks account for only 13.4% of the U.S. population, 36% of all abortions in the United States are black babies. 30, 36%. That's nearly four out of every 10. Yet blacks only account for 13.4% of the population. So what the culture refers to as the nuclear or traditional family, the Bible regards as integral to God's created order, particularly as it relates to maintaining societal order, which begins with the institution of marriage. Okay. Genesis one twenty seven says, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, appended to those words is these words from Genesis 2.24, which says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So the family structure is an idea that originated with God. It is not some product of white culture or whiteness. Marriage, as God defines it, between, I hate to even have to say this, between one (laughs) heterosexual biological female and one heterosexual biological male benefits society as a whole. It doesn't just benefit those Mm -hmm. who are a certain ethnic persuasion or identity. 
Now, by the way, right. contrary to contrary to what the NMAAHC alleges, in a biblical marriage, the wife is not subordinate to her husband, but is equal in both personhood, as we just read in Genesis one twenty seven, and if they are both believers, they're also equal in brotherhood. We see that in First Peter chapter three mm-hmm. verse seven, where they're fellow heirs of the grace of life. So I want to just set that straight as well, Omaha. You got anything, bro? Before we move to number three, quickly I'll say this, and that is this is not this is right in line with the with the mission of Black Lives Matter. So the, the what 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 this organization is encouraging or or what they're trying to do it reminds me it reminds me when when we were in school, bro. Remember when you're in school. And and you spoke with proper English, and and what they try to do is they say, "Oh, you trying to act white? You trying to oh, act man. white?" Yes, yes, man. Come you on, you remember that? Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, or, hey, or, or, we, or you we got get we still get that today. We still get that today. <laughs> right, 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 right. Or 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 you, good grades, you know, on a test. I, yep. I remember, I remember making, I remember making the honor roll, and there was this girl that I wanted to impress. I made the honor roll. She's she was she was a black girl, real cute. I was trying to impress her. Man, I I went to the uh, the assembly held for the for the for the folks who went to the honor roll. I came back to class. She'd had nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. Here we yep. were talking, engaging one another. She had nothing to do with me because I was I was acting white by making good grades and being smart. Yep. And so th- th- this this the 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 N- the NMAAHC is is pulling that same trick again by trying to tell you that if you have a desire to see families together, uh, to see the family structure strong, what you're try- what you're doing is you're acting white. And yep. and, and that's that's right in line with 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 what Black Lives Matter uh, says in in the very you know in, in in their what we believe statement and and I'll I'll quote it here briefly, it says quote we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and quote villages right that yep. collectively care for one another especially our children and and. And to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Basically, what they're trying to do is is to create an environment where the state takes care of your children. That's really yep. what's at, that's really what while they while they undermined what they're calling the Western prescribed nuclear family. This is the biblically mm-hmm. prescribed uh, family that God ordained, and you set that up. The, 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 what what Black Lives Matter and this organization are trying to do. Is they're trying to they're trying to say, well, if you like families, that's because you've been infiltrated with whiteness. I mean, the, the statistics <laughs> regarding fatherless homes, it's staggering. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely mm-hmm. staggering. Eighty five percent of youth who currently are in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Mm-hmm. You know, seven out of 10 youth that are that are housed in state operated correctional facilities, including detention and residential treatment, come from fatherless homes. 39% of students in the United States from first grade to their senior year of high school do, do, do not have a father in the home. And these children are, are four times more likely to live in poverty. I mean, I could go. The statistics are staggering. So what they're mm-hmm. encouraging by trying to tell us that we don't need homes that, 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 are, that are connected to a biblical idea of family is, is that they're leaving us to, you know, these kinds of statistics. They're encouraging these kinds of statistics in black homes. And it's, it's absolutely, I mean, I, I, it, it doesn't make any kind of sense whatsoever. It's definitely not a help to anyone desiring to see success. Yeah. I appreciate you adding those statistics to your commentary, Omaha, because again, 
th- th- listen, we're not trying to in this episode trying to uh, um, make this thing personal with the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I, I don't know anyone who works there. I don't know anyone at the uh, Smithsonian under which which uh, and it is under the Smithsonian umbrella that the NMAAHC falls. Okay, so we're not trying to embarrass anyone, but we are trying to give some context to this. Now, we, we will. I will say this document that 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 organization produced is ridiculous. It's ridiculously it absurd. It's just absolutely yeah. absurd. And I'll just say this one more thing about Black Lives Matter Omaha. I think they want to take it even one step further. So, so when they talk about um, the uh, they endorse a village context, right, for uh, for 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 black people. Um Right. Uh, and, and village, as you as you said, village is essentially code for government, government oversight from crazy to gray. Right. But but they want to go a right. step further. They want to eliminate men from having any role in developing. The Absolutely. Family. They they want a strictly Absolutely. matriarchal family hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Okay, where mm-hmm. where men men aren't involved at all. Okay, that's what Black Lives Matters want. So while you guys are promoting that hashtag out there, go to blacklivesmatters.com and read and read what they stand for. Okay. But that's another topic mm-hmm. for another day. All right. Let's continue right. with the infographic aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. Heading number three was emphasis on scientific method is racist. Right. <laughs> This is unbelievable, man. I know, man. (laughs) This is unbelievable. Emphasis on scientific methods is racist. Okay, I want to start off my uh, critique of this one uh, by quoting from Booker T. Washington again. Again, from his uh, autobiography, Up From Slavery, Slavery, Booker T. Washington said, quote, I have great faith in the power and influence of facts, unquote. I have great faith in the power and influence of facts. Now, simply put, the scientific method involves the process of empirical observation, asking questions about those observations, and seeking answers through tests and experiments. Now, there are eight steps involved in the scientific method, okay? Number one, you ask a question. Number two, you conduct research. Number three, you develop a hypothesis. Number four, you test your hypothesis by conducting experiments. Number five, you record the test results, all right? You record the results from those experiments. Number six, you analyze those results. Number seven, you determine if the results support your hypothesis. And then number eight, you report the results, okay? Now, I find it odd that the NMAAHC wants to criticize objective and rational linear thinking when the opposite of that is to embrace subjective and irrational thinking. Uh, but, th- but that is precisely why standpoint epistemology is gaining so much traction in the church today, Omaha, because it's, yes. uh, it's subjective yeah. and nonlinear. You know, so, so right. you want to take a moment real, se- real quick, Omaha, and explain to our listeners what standpoint epistemology is? 
Yeah, st- standpoint epistemology. Epistemology is the, the 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 branch of philosophy that determines knowledge. So, how do we know what we know? So, when you when you're trying to figure out the epistemology of a of a word, well, how how do you, how do you know what that word is? How, wh- wh- where does that come from? Or when you're trying to understand how something originated or where something came from how do you know that you know that to be true that's that's a, that's what epistemology does it asks the question how do you know what you know to be accurate and correct well, what standpoint epistemology does unfortunately is it 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 in it it injects a person's experience and it's from that perspective that you obtain your knowledge that truth mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. in other words it says that truth is relative what you know is not on the basis of what what can be tested where you do research you develop a hypothesis you record the the test results you analyze the results and then you could repeat that same methodology mm-hmm. over and over and over mm-hmm. again to get the same result what standpoint epistemology says is you, you never have to get the same result you, you you never have to know what you know on the basis of of something formalized something standardized something tested you simply know what you know on the basis of it just feels right to me it feels right to me, and that that's that's sufficient for it to be for the, for that truth claim to stand because it feels right to me. And that again, that that's what that's what we're seeing invade the church culture right now. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, doing that for me, Omaha, because I, I wanted our listeners to hear the connection between standpoint epistemology and why this organization would not support uh, emphasis on the scientific method because the scientific now now. There'll be a small group of our listeners who will understand what I'm about to say. I have a, um, I'm a certified Six Sigma black belt. Okay. Now there'll be folks out there who are in process design and engineering who'll know what that means. But in, in Six Sigma, this is exactly what you do. You basically follow a scientific method where you define a problem, you measure the extent of the problem, you analyze the problem, then you improve the problem, and then you employ a control plan to, uh, con- to observe the results and you report out on those results. Now, when you reject the idea of objective truth, though, and of rational linear thinking, you open yourself up to be sucked into the black hole of relativism. This is exactly what you said in explaining what standpoint epistemology mm-hmm. is. So when, when, when this organization says that an emphasis on the scientific method is, is, is racist because it's a byproduct of white culture, you're, not, you, you're left with nothing but the black hole of relativism where nothing is definitively or objectively true. Or as Dr. Steve Lawson would say, you've opened yourself up to a worldview wherein you have both feet firmly planted in midair. That's the opposite of scientific method and objective truth. Now, one of the most noted advocates of the scientific method, and I mentioned early on in in this episode that we were going to get to him. But one of the more noted advocates of the scientific method was a man by the name of John Dewey. John Dewey. Mm -hmm was widely known as a philosopher and a pragmatist, but he was also an enthusiastic champion of Darwinian evolution. In his book, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology, theologian Dr. John Frame said this about John Dewey, quote, Dewey sees his method of knowledge as being governed by the scientific method. He recognizes the existence of knowledge outside of the scientific field but he believes that the scientific model is sufficient to govern and explain all kinds of knowledge practiced in all walks of life. For Dewey, value is what we achieve when thought leads to action 
and a problem is solved for now. That's another way of saying standpoint epistemology. But on this theory, there are no eternal normative values. With the scientific mm-hmm. method, with the scientific method, values change with our situations. That is, they change with our problems and solutions. Do we believe that our most fundamental values are changeable, determined by situations and resources, unquote? Now, Dr. Frame also says this about Dewey, quote, Dewey is best known today for his work in education. And this is what I'm about to read, Omaha, ties back to your comments earlier about the public education system and what they're teaching our children. Dewey is best known today for his work in education. People may remember the Dewey Decimal System. Well, that's John Dewey. That's the same John Dewey I'm talking that Dr. Frame is talking about right now. Frame says Dewey is best known today for his work in education. He was a strong advocate of public schooling, seeing it as an important means of social change. He, that is Dewey, believed that the public schools should turn children away from the traditional ideas of their families and toward views he considered better for society. Dewey's politics were progressive and were heavily influenced by Karl Marx. Though he often commended democracy, Dewey also praised the Soviet Union in glowing terms after a visit there, unquote. Now, Understanding that the NMAAHC is a secular organization, that that organization would deem the scientific method or, or, or being able to test whether something was objectively true or false was a product of whiteness and white cu- culture is dumbfounding. It truly is dumbfounding. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that against such texts as, as Proverbs fourteen fifteen, which says the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. Proverbs chapter two, verse six, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 23, 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Okay. Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, Paul's talking about empirical evidence here, objective truth. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Anything uh, else on that, Omaha, before we move on to number four? Number four, I want to just clear something up. I, I, I was thinking quick, thinking quickly and then speaking. I should have said I'm speaking more, more quicker than I'm actually thinking. I, I misspoke when I said uh, epistemology and, and, and talked about the origin of words. The origin of words is etymology. And I want right. to make that clarification and distinction. So when I, epistemology is how we know what we know. It's, it's the philosophy of how we know what we know. So all of what I shared in that section was accurate and correct, except for when I, when I mentioned the origin of words, that, that was incorrect. I, I, I had a, had a brain, brain, brain fart and, and, uh, and was thinking etymology rather than epistemology. I just wanted to make that, that clarification. Gotcha, bro. Thanks Omaha for that. All right. Number four yep. Yep. in this document aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States is history. 
history. According to this document, history is based on Northern European immigrants' experience in the United States, heavy focus on the British Empire, the primacy of Western, that is Greek, Roman, and Judeo-Christian tradition. So according to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, history is racist. <laughs> how, 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 who, who sat down to write this? Who, who sat down to, like, whoever, Ooh. whoever sat down in the room oh, to boy. put this together, they should be fired. I mean, they should, they should just be fired. History, like history, like the recording of, of past events is racist. This is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Well, let's give the listeners some history here, especially those who may be listening uh, from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I want to introduce our listeners. Uh, Omaha, are you familiar with a, uh, a man by the name of Abraham Johnstone? No, I am not. Let me introduce you to Abraham Johnstone. Abraham Johnstone, in the year 1797, Abraham Johnstone was a former slave. He was born in Delaware, but he was convicted in Gloucester County, New Jersey, of murdering another black man named Thomas Reed. R-E-A-D, Thomas Reed. Thomas Reed was another free black man, and Abraham Johnstone, on murdering Mr. Reed, was sentenced to be hanged. Now, when the court asked for a statement from Johnstone after it announced his conviction, Johnstone gave an eloquent public discourse, okay? Although Johnstone never admitted nor denied his guilt, he addressed what he called the special circumstances which placed him in court and destined him to the gallows. Now, Johnstone offered extensive advice to his fellow African-Americans on how to avoid his fate. So what the National Museum of African-American History Culture calls whiteness and white culture. Well, let's give them some black history, shall we? This is yes. from Abraham Johnstone himself. Uh, these are words that he spoke just prior to him being uh, hanged uh, for murder. July 2nd, 1797, quote, My dear brethren, I earnestly pray you to be diligent and industrious in all your callings, manners of business, and stations in life. Be punctual, upright, and just in all your contracts, engagements, and dealings of what kind or nature soever. Be faithful, tender, and affectionate in all the relations you bear in society, whether as children, servants, husbands, wives, fathers, or mothers. Be decent in your dress and frugal in all your expenses. For by that means, you will provide for the wants of sickness and old age. Refrain from the too great use of spiritous liquors. A little is serviceable, but by all means beware of too much. For that irreparably injures the Constitution and cannot add to the enjoyment of those innocent pleasures and recreations necessary to you as human beings and members of societies. But above all, my dear friends, avoid frolicking and all amusements that lead to expense 
and idleness, for they beget habits of dissipation and vice and lead you into many inconveniences, unquote. Those were the words of Abraham Johnstone on the day that he was hanged, having been convicted of the murder of one Mr. Thomas Reed. Now, before uh, Johnstone was hanged, he also read a letter that he dedicated to his wife. And I won't go into that here, but in that letter, his greatest wish regret, and I want to tie this back to um, what uh, what this document uh, says about family structure being a product of white culture and whiteness. Abraham Johnstone, before he was hanged on the gallows, read a letter to his wife, and his biggest regret in that letter was that he was leaving her without a husband to protect her. Unbelievable. But what I wow. found interesting about Abraham Johnstone's last words was that his last words were to his fellow black brothers and sisters on how to live in society, how right. to live every, a virtuous life. Go ahead, Virg. Every, every Everything contrary to what this organization has put exactly together. In this right. That's exactly everything right. contrary. Yep. Exactly right. And see, I deliberately. And prepare for this episode, I deliberately tried to interject and inculcate as many black sources to cite as I possibly could. Okay? So here you have a black man in Abraham Johnstone on the gallows about to be hanged. About to be hanged. And what does he do? He spends the last seconds of his life on earth encouraging his black Mm -hmm. brothers and sisters on how to live a virtuous life what virtues to pursue and what vices to stay away from. But Hey, history, history is racist. Well, there, there's some history right. for you from Mr. Abraham Johnstone. Anything you want to add there verse before we move on to number five, just unbelievable. I mean, everything contrary, everything contrary to what this organization stands for. I mean, that, that, that's enough said. Number five. Protestant work ethic is racist. Now, I pretty much covered this uh, heading with the first item we discussed on rugged individualism, but I do want to cite a few verses of scripture to help debunk this notion that having a Protestant work ethic is rooted in whiteness and white culture. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10. If the axe is dull, and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success, okay? Proverbs 26, verses 14 through 16. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. Again, just talking about laziness here. Laziness up against... This organization saying that a Protestant work ethic is, is, is whiteness and white culture. Galatians 6, verse 4. But each one must examine his own work. Listen to what Book T. Washington said. Washington said this. He said, nothing comes to a person that is worth having except as a result of hard work. Okay. Washington also said this. He said, I believe that any man's life will be filled with constant and unexpected encouragement if he makes up his mind 
to do his level best each day and nearly as possible reaching the high water mark of pure and useful living. Who else does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Abraham Johnstone, who we just read. Frederick Douglass said this, quote, people might not get all they work for in this world, but they must certainly work for all they get, unquote. I like that Matt, one. I, I like, like that, that one, bro. Madam C.J. Walker. Madam C.J. Walker was the first female self-made millionaire in America. She had a line of hair care products that made her wealthy, black, black, uh, black-themed hair care products that made her a millionaire. Madam C.J. Walker said this, quote, I had to make my own living and my own opportunity, but I made it. Don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. Get up and make them yourself, unquote. Come on. Okay? Come on. In the book, uh, The Story of Christianity by Justo L. Gonzalez, which I highly recommend, it's called The Story of Christianity by Justo. The first name is spelled J-U-S-T-O. Justo L. Gonzalez, okay? In that book, The Story of Christianity, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius is, is noted as having a collection of what he called meditations, which were ideals by which he tried to rule his vast uh, empire. Here's one of the entries that Marcus Aurelius wrote in his meditations. Quote, think constantly, both as a Roman and as a man, to do the task before you with perfect and simple dignity and with kindness, freedom, and justice. Try to forget everything else. And you will be able to do so if you undertake every action in your life as if it were the last, leaving aside all negligence and opposition of passion to the dictates of reason and leaving aside all hypocrisy, egotism, and rebelliousness against your own lot. Unquote. That was Marcus Aurelius as quoted in the story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. Now I wanted to quote those uh, individuals again, just as an objective argument against this idea, this ridiculous idea that the Protestant work ethic is somehow racist. I mean, seriously, Omaha, anything you want to say on this man before we move on? There's no, I mean, there's nothing else to say that, 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 again, I think that the, the, the scriptures you quoted when we walk through the the uh, rugged individualism, these here, I mean, they 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 basically make the case. It's, it's unbelievable. Okay, next number six mm-hmm. is religion. Mm-hmm. Religion. Okay, now in his book Reformed Ethics, which you rightly encouraged our listeners to go and pick a copy of. Yes, that's a good Reformed one. Ethics by Hervin Bavink. Bavink wrote this. It is of foremost importance that we acknowledge Christianity as the only source for determining the essence of religion. To want to determine the essence of religion by trying to find what all religions have in common yields only an abstraction without substance. What is true and good in other religions can be determined and measured only by the true Christian religion. One also has to distinguish between religion in an objective sense And in a subjective sense, once we understand both, we may be able to grasp what they have in common, unquote. Now, the NMAAHC says they have a problem with religion because their sub bullets here say Christianity is the norm. And anything other than the Judeo-Christian tradition is foreign. No tolerance for deviation from the single God concept. And 
you know, at this bullet where they say anything other than Judeo-Christian tradition is foreign, I have in my notes here, no, it's not foreign. It's just not the truth. So that's what, right. that's my, that, that's what's going right. on there. So they, they, they right. say they, that they, they ding the Judeo-Christian tradition because it, it doesn't tolerate, it has no tolerance for deviation from a single God concept. Now, I don't know if the NMAAHC knows this, but there are other religions in the world that subscribe to a monotheistic view. Okay, right. so Chris, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition is not the only major tradition, religious tradition, that subscribes to a single God concept. So does Islam, so does Judy, it, yeah. Judaism, and, 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 and many, many others. Go ahead, Omar. It's the only one mentioned for a reason, because it's true. It, it, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition is the only religion mentioned because it's true and, mm-hmm. it, and it has objective truth claims. And as a result of its objective truth claims, it stands in complete and total opposition to a godless world view, which is what's trying to be promoted in this in this uh, this little statement here. You know, uh, Omaha, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth, Tozer said this, quote, there's a mindset today that thinks every motion is progress, that every time you move, you're progressing. Then there's the mindset that thinks whenever you move in a straight line, you're going forward, forgetting that you can move in a straight line and be going backward, unquote. That's a mic drop quote there from A.W. Toes as far as I'm concerned. Now, <laughs> yeah. he, he says people forget that you can move in a, sl- in a straight line and be going backwards. And that's what the NMAAHC is doing. They're complaining here that there's no tolerance for deviation from the concept of a single God. And as I said earlier, by single God, I can only assume that they're referring to Christianity as a monotheistic religion, a religion that believes that there's only one God. Now, apparently the NMAAHC is not aware, as I said, Islam is also a monotheistic religion, as is Judaism, Mm -hmm. and as are the vast majority of religions that are practiced in the continent of Africa, believe it or not. I say that in the, in up up against uh, something I read in the book. I have a book called the title of which is African Origins of Monotheism. Because and I'm pointing this out because here wow. here in, in in this infographic, the NMAAHC is basically trying to call Christianity to task because they consider it a white man's religion. They don't say it here in the document, right. but, but come on, let's read let's read between the lines here. We know what they're trying to say. Right. But let's look at what, what's going on. Let's look at the history of monotheism in Africa. Because the, the NMAAHC, they can't come back with this same retort and say, oh, well, the Africa, African monotheism is a white, white man's religion. They can't say that. So I'm going to mm-hmm. cite an African source. I'm going to cite an African source here. In the book, African Origins of Monotheism, subtitled Challenging the Eurocentric Interpretation of God Concepts on the Continent and in Diaspora, Arthur Gwinyai H. Muzorewa. Her last name is spelled M-U-Z-O-R-E-W-A. Gwenya is spelled G-W-I-N-Y-A-I. Gwenyai Muzorewa. She writes this, quote, monotheism is one platitudinous characteristic of African belief in God, defined as the doctrine that there is only one eternal God who is moral, just, merciful, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, eternal, and transcendent. Monotheism, listen to this, monotheism is central in the concept of God 
among various people of African descent, both at home and abroad, unquote. So there's an African source, okay, that underscores the idea of monotheism as being historically the norm in Africa, okay? Mm-hmm. So for all its attempts to disparage the Judeo-Christian uh, religion as a product of whiteness and white culture, sorry, I just quoted an, an African source that says that, well, the same goes for Africa. Africa, African religion has as, as its core a monotheistic uh, center. Any thoughts on this, Omaha, mm-hmm. before we move on? No, no, this is this is good. I, I mean, the, the the idea and concept that that all Africans are animus uh, is is not is just absolutely not true. And 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 yep. and I I appreciate the fact that you grabbed a you grabbed a an African source to validate that. All right, number seven, status, power, and authority. Now, I don't have any <laughs> the sub the sub the sub bullets the sub bullets under this are hysterical, bro. I mean, wealth equals worth. Wealth. The bullet point under under the under status, power, and authority. Wealth equals worth. I mean, you almost hear whiteness in that very statement there. I mean, look. Let let let's be clear. It in according to this document, you need to divest of your wealth or attaching it to worth and and i i get the dichotomy but the, but the idea is the idea inbred in this is wealth means i'm worth more well you are worth more from a standpoint of, of economics right you, you you're no greater or lesser on the basis of of the human condition you're an image bearer of god there's no more great there's no greater value that you can have than that of, of course what what this organization is trying to do is they're trying to say something something innate to to you melt then is somehow valuable has has a specific value attached to it and in this instance it's it's not much uh and and again under status power and authority wealth is deemed as white your job yes. is who you are believing that your job that, that having a job and, and and maybe having having a sense of pride about that job uh is is problematic this is the part that kills me bro respect respect authority so that's, that's white a, whoa, 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 whoa. that's racist that's, that right, right. It's racist to respect, to respect authority. authority. See, that's that. That's 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 why folks are getting cracked in the head out there. That's that's why I'm just look. I'm just gonna shoot it straight. Folks are getting cracked in the head in part because they have a disrespect for authority. Not all, not all, not all. But man, a whole lot of folk, whole lot of black folk. Have a have an innate natural problem that has been trained by their family members yes, to have a yes. disdain for yes. authority, particularly yes. police officers. Right, and that's just that it just it just is what it is. A heavy value on ownership of goods, space, and property. Give me a break. That you, you're you're absolutely stripping black folk of of all the things that are necessary in order to obtain wealth in order to maintain status in order to have a good job in order to follow authority this is this is stupid absolutely stupid the thing about it though omaha in in our contemporary society today in 2020 some of the most wealthy individuals we know are black people right what is, absolutely what is, what is lebron james's net worth Half a billion? Right, 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 right. What is what is what is uh what is Beyonce 
worth? What are what are Beyonce and Jay Z worth? About six hundred, seven hundred million. Right. I mean, these are right. these are these folks aren't only wealthy; they have empires. Mm-hmm. They have empires, and yet this document wants to call out status, power, and authority as an exclusively whiteness issue. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Speaking of Mm-mm. speaking of time, the next one is number eight on this uh, infographic is future orientation. The sub sub bullets are it's 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 racist to plan for the future. Wow. It's it's racist to delay your gratification. <laughs> it's it's racist to consider making progress towards a goal as a positive thing. Hey, that explains the, the 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 delayed gratification thing. Explains why the protesters were cracking store windows and running out with televisions. They did not want their gratification to be delayed any longer. <laughs> <laughs> it explains it, right? This is absurd. that explains the protesters. It's absurd. It's it's absurd. I just cannot explain. Uh, it's also racist to be be positive about your future. They they have here in quotes that tomorrow will be better. That's that, thinking that tomorrow is going to be better. Okay, I, I I think they I think they may have had gone with the wind in mind when Scarlett O'Hara at the end she had, she's famous for saying this line. Well, you know, after all, tomorrow is another day. I, I think they may have maybe have gone with the gone with the wind in mind. I think that it's it's racist. It's it's a rep- representative of white culture and whiteness to be positive about the future. This is, this is just incredible. Okay. Number, number nine is time. Hi. (laughs) What? How is time racist? God created it. The sub bullets here are, are, it's racist to follow rigid time schedules. It's also racist to view time as a commodity. Wow. Those are the two sub bullets here under the time heading in this infographic produced by the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. I want to bring in Jonathan Edwards here, uh, talking about time. Jonathan Edwards, in a message he titled Redeeming the Time from December 1734, said this, quote, There are two ways of making men sensible of the preciousness of time. One is by showing them the reason why it must be precious, by telling them how much depends on it, how short it is, how uncertain, etc. The other is experience, wherein men are convinced how much depends on the improvement of time. The latter is the most effectual way, for that always convinces if nothing else does. But if persons be not convinced by the former means, the latter will do them no good. If the former be ineffectual, the latter, though it be excuse me, but though it be certain, yet is always too late. Experience never fails to open the eyes of men, though they were never opened before. But if they be first opened by that, it is no way to their benefit. Let all therefore be be persuaded to improve their time to their utmost, unquote. That was Jonathan Edwards from December 1734. He said, let all therefore be persuaded to improve. That is to make the most of their time. Make the most of your time. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. This The writer here is talking about time. 
length of days and years of life. He's talking about time. He says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on your on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God. Amen. So, wow. Time is uh, adhering to or appreciating the value of time, appreciating time as a commodity, appreciating appreciating that time, your time here on this earth is limited, is racist. It's a byproduct of whiteness wow. and white culture. Anything else, Omaha, before wow. we move on to number 10? I, this, I mean, it, <laughs> I, I'm just dumbstruck at the stupidity. I mean, it, it, this is this is unbelievable. People throughout cultures, throughout eons of time have been thinking about uh, following and adhering to specific schedules. I mean, there, there, there's a reason. I mean, I, I, there's there's not more you can say about that. The sheer stupidity, the weight of the stupidity should should be re- incredibly reflected by saying that time and following rigid schedules is racist. That should be enough said. I mean, in, in the words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Right, right. Okay, you, you're already confronted with a framework, a paradigm of time, in the beginning. Time. Okay, number 10, from the infographic produced by the National Museum of African American History and Culture is aesthetics, aesthetics. Sub-bullets under aesthetics, mm. based on European culture, steak and potatoes, Bland is best. <laughs> Woman's beauty based on blonde, thin, Barbie. Man's attractiveness okay. based on economic status, power, and intellect. <clears throat> Let me start my commentary here by quoting from the book, A Christian Directory. A Christian Directory by the 17th century Puritan Richard Baxter. In that book, Baxter said this, <clears throat> quote, Let it appear in your lives that you seek a higher happiness than this world affords and that you verily look to live with Christ and that as honor and pleasure and wealth, in other words, aesthetics, commands the life of the ungodly, so the hope of heaven commands yours. Let me repeat that sentence. Baxter says, let it appear in your lives that you seek a higher happiness than this world offers and that you verily look to live with Christ and that as honor and pleasure and wealth commands the life of the ungodly, so the hope of heaven commands yours. Let it appear that this is your design and business in the world, and that your heart and conversations are above, and that whatever you do or suffer is for this, and not for any lower or worldly end, unquote. Now, when you think about this idea of aesthetics, you really... uh, uh, Understand that aesthetics is ultimately what doomed the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. Aesthetics is is, 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 is fundamentally what did him in. I want to read from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. It says, a ruler questioned him, ruler questioned Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. 
But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. That was from Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. Aesthetics ultimately did him in there. The, the, the aesthetics of wealth, the aesthetics, the aesthetics of position and power. Now, one of my favorite verses of scripture, Omaha, is Psalm 62.10. Psalm 62.10 says, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Now, that admonition in, in Psalm 62.10 aligns with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, what does this passage have to do with aesthetics? Well, one of the things I think this passage in Matthew 6 reminds us of is that whatever you think you are, however uh, secure you think you are, either financially, intellectually, otherwise, including your mm-hmm. physical appearance, is one, mm-hmm. day, one day is going to turn to dust. One day, all that you are in that selfie that you're so proud of, it's going to turn to dust. You're going to be dust in the ground. Okay. And that's what Jesus is reminding us of here in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 21. He's not just talking about material wealth, material treasures. He's talking about all that you value, including your aesthetics, the car you drive, the home you live in, the bank account balance, all that's going to be gone one day. So Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Similarly to that, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 27, he says, do not work for the food that perishes or for the food which you Uh, which endures to eternal life. So you could paraphrase that and say, do not work for aesthetics reasons. Do not pursue aesthetics. Pursue the food which endures for eternal life. Now, none of this is to suggest that we should not endeavor to do all we can so that our needs and the needs of others are met in a way that allows us to live as comfortably as possible as God provides us the means to do so. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. But we also know from first John chapter two, that this world is passing away. And that one day, all that we have, all that we admire about ourselves, about someone else is going to turn to dust. Mm-hmm. It's going to be absolutely worthless. Anything you want to say, Omar, before we move on? I like, I, I like what you did there with that section because what, what you did is you, you didn't say you, you, you didn't, you didn't validate or invalidate the issue of aesthetics, but you put it in its proper biblical context so that we can have a clear thought about aesthetics. God, God made beauty, right? God is a God of beauty and, and there there's value in aesthetics, but it's in, it's if, if our praise, if our worship falls on that, which is, is, is simply aesthetics for, for the sake of aesthetics, we've absolutely missed it. What we should do is we should see something that is beautiful and worship the God who created that thing and 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 understand the beauty and nature of of him that 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 an attribute of god is actually on display in in the beauty that we see around us and so again for them to put this in a category of whiteness is to totally miss the mark and and it's because they don't have a a, a biblical view of of god and who he is and the beauty that he that he represents 
in in nature and culture and the like that that they that they 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 address really insignificant things blonde hair blue eyes you, you know, know. S- stuff that really is 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 absolutely silly yeah this and and again we we say that up against the the reality right that this is a secular entity that we're talking about here Okay, the National right, Museum of African American right. History and Culture is not an ecclesiastical uh, entity at all. It has no association whatsoever with Christ's church. So we get that, okay? But as Christians, right. we are to take the world, we we are and, and the, we are to take the world, society and its unbiblical, ungodly worldviews and couch them within the objective uh, truth of scripture. And that's what we're doing here. Because this is this is one of the most divisive hate-filled mm-hmm. Um, uh, arguments in, in in the form of, of these bullets that I've ever seen, that I've ever come across. This, this is this is this is some of the most divisive uh, ideology that I've ever encountered, and it, and it behooves us as Christians to think critically about uh, um, um, ideas like this that have been put on paper and made available to to people all around the world as some sort of a virtuous path to follow. But this is the right. part of the, a thing, a thing, divisive a thing as I've ever seen that I've ever come across. I, All right, I, so let's go ahead. I Omar, also think it, I, I also think it's important to walk through and here's why. And here's why I mentioned this earlier that come this fall, when school gets back in session, whatever manner or form that takes on, I can promise you that everything that we've covered in our time together in, in this, in this, in, you know, the, the inf- infogram, whatever, whatever it's called, is, is going to be taught at public schools. You're going to your children. If you send, if you send your kids to school, they're going to be given in-depth doses of what we're walking through in this, in, in, in our time together. Great point. Here. Great point. And, and pa- parents are going to need to know biblically, historically, uh, ecclesiastically, how to address these things. How did the church deal with these kinds of issues as they came up? How do we deal with this theologically? How do we deal this from a standpoint of, 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 of historical theology, of biblical theology, of systematic theology? And, and, and we need to know how to navigate this, and so that's why that's why we take the time to unpack each and every uh, bit of of of, of this uh, of this paper. Amen, Omar. Thanks for thanks for saying that, man. That's exactly right. All right, so let's keep moving. Number eleven is holidays. Number twelve, justice. Holidays sub bullets based on Christian religion, based on white history, and male leaders. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, what what. What do you say there? I mean, this reminds me, Omaha, matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, my sister, uh, my sister and my mother are still uh, in Atlanta. And uh, but my sister texted me a couple of weeks ago saying that Atlanta, uh, or at least the county, Fulton County, uh, which is a major main county in Atlanta, um, has recognized uh, Juneteenth. And re- replaced Columbus Day with Juneteenth. Yeah. So yeah. there we go. So we not, have not surprising uh, again, it, not, not surprising. You've got, you've what this, yeah. What this, what this says is, it's the presupposition that anything white is evil. Right. Uh, any, any, anything male needs to be, needs, needs to be put down. And so all of this is based upon that, that presupposition that they've trained and taught in culture over and over and over again for the last two, 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 two to three decades. So not surprising. Number 12, justice, of course. 
We knew we knew this was going to be on the list. Justice, right. uh, their their subbull is here, based on English common law, uh, protect property and entitlements. That's racist. That's racist to want to protect your private property. Uh, right. Intent intent counts. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how that uh, relates to justice being. Uh, a byproduct of whiteness and, <laughs> and and white culture that intent counts. I mean, I, I think in every in every instance of in every objective instance of injustice, motive and intent are critical. They're critical, right? Because I mean, right. This, but but this, this this is this is a prime example why I think the term hate crime is 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 the oxymoron of all oxymorons. Right, every crime, <laughs> right, right. Every crime is a crime of hate. Hate, hate, right. hate crime? Why would you not want to, in, 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 an, in an instance of legitimate injustice, of objective injustice, why would you not want to find out all you can about the intent and motives that led to that injustice? But here, the National Museum of African American History and Culture is saying, well, the fact that we want to, uh, to, to put weight on intent, well, that's racist. That's that's right. that's a byproduct of whiteness and white culture. We can't be doing. We can't right. be. But, but I tell you, the more we go through this, the more speechless I become. So uh, anyway, <laughs> let, 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 let's move on. Number thirteen, competition. Competition. It's racist to want to be number one. It's racist to want to win at all costs. It's racist. Racist. It's racist. Racist. <laughs> white and racist. Racist. <laughs> I've been saying white and whiteness so much. It's it's right, racist. Right. The winner winner loser dichotomy is racist. So in this case, everybody gets a participation trophy. Matter of fact, it's it's becoming now a society where you don't even have to participate to get a trophy. You don't even have to participate. The the bar, what do you call it, Omaha? The the low, the low what? You have a term for it's, that. It's, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. Soft bigotry of low expectations. Soft. The the bar just conti- the soft bigotry of low expectations. So what what they're arguing for here is especially as it relates to blacks that the bar needs to be continually lowered and lowered and lowered. It's racist to be action oriented. It's racist to think you can master and control nature. It's racist to think that you must always do something about a situation. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's racist. <laughs> aggressiveness and extroversion is racist. So if you're an extrovert, you're, you're racist by, by, uh, by demeanor. You're racist by demeanor. Decision-making sub bullet decision-making is racist. Decision-making is a byproduct of whiteness and white culture to make a decision, make a decision. Who decided to put this infographic together? That's what I want to (laughs) know. Somebody made a decision. Somebody made a decision. They must have been racist. Good night. Listen, unbelievable. Uh, last last sub bullet on the competition is that majority when whites in power, the majority rules. Oh man! Listen, on on this competition's heading, I, I want to go to Mark chapter seven because in Mark chapter seven, Mark seven records the account of Jesus healing a man who was deaf and mute. We're talking about competition here. Mark seven records the account of Jesus healing a man who was deaf and mute. Now, after healing the man. We read in verse 37 of Mark chapter 7 that the people who witnessed what had occurred were astonished. 
And we're saying that Jesus, the saying about Jesus, that he has done all things well. That's Mark 37. I'm sorry. Mark chapter seven, verse 37. Mark chapter seven, verse 37. The people said that Jesus has done all things well. Jesus did all things well. And as his people, we should also endeavor to do all things well. Not in a spirit of prideful or self-serving competition as a way of life, but even in situations that are competitive, we want to do our best as an offering of service to God so that he is glorified. That's our motive. That's our intent. Racist as that might be. That's our intent is that God will be glorified, not an effort to bring glory to ourselves. You know, when you think about this whole competition right. thing, you know, you th- I think about Moses. Moses was a man who was used mightily of God. People think about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses being present when God parted the Red Sea, Moses being involved where God brought the 10 plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt. But you know what it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 about Moses? It says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. That's Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It talks about for all for all the, the mighty things that God used Moses to accomplish, Numbers 12, 3 talks about Moses' humility. So he was more humble than any man who was on the face of the earth. Listen to uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. James chapter four, verse six says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now pair James chapter four, verse six with Colossians three, verses 23 and 24, which says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. In other words, run your race. Don't run someone else's race. Run your race. I love what's said there in Acts 20. I do not consider myself I do not consider my life as any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize run in such a way that you may win. So we're trying to put into a biblical context, the criticisms here of this document from the national museum of African-American history and culture which is arguing that competition is a product of whiteness and white culture. Listen, the British Olympian, the British Olympian and Christian missionary, Eric Little, Eric Little's story was featured in the 1981 movie chariots of fire. Eric Little said this quote in the dust of defeat, as well as the laurels of victory, there is a glory to be found. If one has done his best, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Unquote. That was Eric Little. The Puritan Thomas Manton said this, quote, every creature is God's servant and has his work to do wherein to glorify God, some in one calling and some in another, unquote. 
The 16th century English reformer William Tyndale said this, quote, There's a difference between the washing of dishes and the preaching of the gospel. But as to pleasing God, there's no difference in them at all. Unquote. First Corinthians 12 verses verse 18. The apostle Paul said this, but now God had placed, has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. That's first Corinthians 12, 18. Now consider those words uh, of Paul against his words in Galatians 5, 26, where he says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, I mentioned these verses about humility and our, our, our having a Christ-like proper attitude because when it comes to competition, some people can get so caught up in themselves that they throw, uh, they throw themselves into the competition forgetting, okay, F- forgetting these kinds of principles that I've just um, talked about in these verses that I've just cited. But we, we don't want, we as Christians don't want to be so competitive that we forget and we lose sight of the attitude and the spirit of Christ that we're to take into that competition. So notwithstanding that the NMAAHC considers competition as whiteness and, and white culture, Christians, uh, uh, yes, we're, we're to put forth our best, but to God's glory, not seeking our own glory. Absolutely. Anything you want to add there, Omaha? No, I totally agree, man, that 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 again, you've got to make sure that you place the category that they've that they've labeled in its proper biblical context. And I think you've done that well with with the idea that we we give it our all. We give it our best, not for our glory, but for God's. Uh, and we and we and we find great joy and 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 pleasure in pleasing God and pleasing God and and doing what He's designed us and gifted us to do. So I I I think that's solid. One last sub bullet uh, under the sub bullet. Uh, I'm sorry, under the main heading of competition was the sub bullet master and control nature. So the NMAAHC <laughs> considers the uh, mankind's desire to master and control nature a byproduct of whiteness and white culture. I just want to take them to Genesis chapter one, verse 28, which says where God commands us, right? Be fruitful and multiply Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is, again, this is another creation ordinance from God himself. This has nothing to do Mm -hmm. with any ethnic uh, culture or, uh, or 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 social aspect whatsoever. We have a command of God to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. All right? So I just want to say that as a last point for under the main heading competition. All right, so we're now at our final uh, main heading, which is communication. Right. This is the final main heading <laughs> of all things, right? The irony. The communication yes. is the last main heading on this infographic from the National Museum of African-American History and Culture titled Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. Okay, so communication. Let's, I want to cite a few scripture verses here. First of all, Psalm 3730, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Okay, so we're talking about communication. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no unwholesome word Proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 
but now also but now you also put them all aside anger wrath malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices matthew chapter 12 verses 36 and 37 but i tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned now some of the sub bullets that are under the main heading here in this nmaahc document are the king's english rules mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. written tradition avoid conflict and intimacy don't show emotion so 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 they're saying that it is is a byproduct of whiteness and white culture to not show emotion, to avoid conflict and intimacy, right. to to not discuss your personal life. Now, here's the kicker. I need a. I wish I had a drum roll right here. The final sub <laughs> sub bullet. The sub, the final sub bullet under the communication heading is that it is a byproduct of whiteness and white culture to be polite. Right. I got nothing after that. <laughs> You got nothing. It's, it's, this this go, this goes back to the thing that we talked about earlier, which was especially the, the, the King's English. So rather than speaking intelligently, rather than speaking uh, in in a way that's easily understood by all, you'd rather what I don't know ebonics. You'd rather some other kind of way to speak that is improper or broken or or not or not correct. Uh, and it's and it's grammar and syntax. I, this is just this is silly. I want to close this out, Omaha. Talking about communication, I want to close this out. Given that this, what we've been reviewing and talking about in this episode of the Just Thinking podcast has been this infographic that was produced by the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I want to close out by introducing our listeners to five individuals, five black women. Five uh, black women who many of our listeners may know little to nothing about, but who, apart from a strong appreciation for communication, okay, mm-hmm. we would not be talking about them uh, today here in 2020. The flow, bear with me, listeners, as I take you through this Hall of Fame of black women who use their communication skills mightily during their era. The first is a, a, a woman by the name of Maria W. Stewart. In September 1832, Maria W. Stewart, who was a, a free black domestic worker, became the first American woman, period, to address a public audience of both men and women. Stewart spoke out against slavery, criticizing black men for not standing up and being heard on the subject of human and civil rights. She wrote both pamphlets and speeches for William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator until she retired in 1833. Another black woman by the name of Mary Prince wrote a book titled The History of Mary Prince, a West Indian Slave, which exposed the horrors of the Caribbean slave trade. Now, let me stop right there. Because it's probably a uh, comes as a shock to many of our listeners that there was a slave trade outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. I say that sarcastically 
because most of the slave trade occurred outside of the United States. But that's another topic for another episode. But Mary Prince was the first woman to present an anti-slavery petition to Parliament. Okay, so we're talking about communication in contrast to the uh, the demerits that the NMAAHC wants to attribute to having a strong communication ethic. Listen to how communication served these black women like Martha W. Stewart, Mary Prince. The next is a woman by the name of Sarah Mapp Douglas. Mapp is spelled M-A-P-P, no relation to Frederick Douglas. A woman by the name of Sarah Mapp Douglas. Sarah Mapp Douglas lived from 1806 to 1882. She was an abolitionist, a writer, and an educator. She was a freeborn daughter of Robert and Grace Douglas, who was a distinguished black abolitionist family in Philadelphia. She joined her mother, Grace, as a founding member of the multi-ethnic Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, or PFAS, in 1833. Now, throughout her abolitionist career, Sarah Mapp Douglas also served as recording secretary, librarian, and manager for PFAS. She contributed to both the Liberator and the Anglo-African magazine. She became a fundraiser for the black press and gave numerous public lectures. She ran a school for free black children in Philadelphia. She was described as a passionate educator, and she also taught black children and adults in New York. In 1853, she took over the girls' preparatory department at the Philadelphia Institute for Colored Youth, offering courses in literature, science, and anatomy. Douglas maintained a long and close friendship with prominent white abolitionists, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, daughters of South Carolina slaveholders. In her letter to Sarah Grimke, Douglas revealed the pain of encountering race prejudice among fellow Quakers. Okay, so that was Sarah Mapp Douglas. Sarah Parker Remond, R-E-M-O-N-D. Sarah Parker Remond lived from 1824 to 1894. She was an African-American lecturer, abolitionist, and agent of the American Anti-Slavery Society. She was born of free blacks and made her first speech against slavery when she was only 16 years old. As a young woman, Raymond delivered anti-slavery speeches throughout the Northeast United States. Let me pause here for a second. What a lot of people may not be aware of is that when it comes to slavery in the United States, slavery was first legalized. That is written into legislation in the North. In the North. Northern, it was Northern states that legalized and legitimized slavery into law. Now, it was the South that profited from it. But it was the North that first legalized slavery in America. Okay. Uh, finishing up with Sarah Park Raymond, she traveled to England to gather support for the abolitionist cause in the United States. And when she was older, she became a physician in Italy, where she stayed until her death in 1894. Last two wow. poet and orator Francis E.W. Harper. Francis E.W. Harper. Lived from 1825 to 1911. <clears throat> Francis Harper was the child of two free black parents, advocated for abolition and education in her speeches and publications. Her first poem collection, titled Forest Leaves, was published around 1845. Now, I'm thinking Omaha, as a poet, Francis E.W. E. Harper pretty much had to rely on the King's English, would you, would you say? 
<laughs> Absolutely. The, uh, the delivery of her first public speech titled Education and the Elevation of the, Cover of, of the Colored Race, Education and the Elevation of the Colored Race, resulted in a two-year lecture tour for Francis E.W. Harper on behalf of the Anti-Slavery Society. So now you're starting, I got one more to go, but now you're starting to get the emphasis of communication, okay, with these, with, with these, with these, with these black historical figures, these, all these black women. Lastly, I want to highlight a woman by the name of Mary Ann Shad Carey. Shad is spelled S-H-A-D-D. Mary Ann Shad Carey lived from 1823 to 1893. She was the first black female newspaper editor, starting a publication titled The Provincial Freeman in Canada. Carey's abolitionist activities came naturally to her. Her father worked for the Liberator, run by famed abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. After the war, after the Civil War, Carey earned in 1883, a law degree from Howard University. Now, now let me stop here. Many of our listeners may not be aware of, but that Howard University in Washington, D.C. is named after a white Civil War Union general, Oliver O. Howard. Oliver O. Howard was named after a white Union general in the Civil War. And I'm going to go on to say here, that out of the Civil War in, in, during Reconstruction, were it not for white Republicans, were it not for white abolitionists, the vast majority of historical black colleges and universities that now exist would not exist. Would not exist. Howard University is one of them. But in 1883, Mary Ann Shad Carey earned a law degree from Howard University, making her the second African-American woman in the United States to earn that degree. Now, with all that, Omaha, we have finally made our way through the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States infographic produced by the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Anything you want to say, brother, to close us out? I will close us out by saying I'm hopeful that those who listen and, and follow us all the way to the end will find what we've put in this episode incredibly helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm also hopeful that you'll take the time to go and do even deeper research on the names uh, that, that Daryl mentioned, the, the five ladies at the end, as well as, as, as some of the quotes uh, from, from, from others that, that, I mean, this particular episode, though it was, you know, Partially, you know, we thought we thought about it. We we kind of mapped out where we were going to go and what we we're going to do. It, there there still was a, uh, was a freestyle ebb and flow. Prob- probably realizing more more of more of my thoughts were <laughs> definitely free flow as I, as 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 I kind of began to close. But I, I I do want this to serve as a resource. We we get calls, text messages, inbox uh, messages, tweets. Uh, and the like from a lot of people asking a lot of different questions. And and a lot of the answers are found power packed in some of these lengthier uh, episodes that we spend the time to, to work on. So I'm going to encourage you to take your time walking through this, grab a, a pen, a paper. If you've got, gotten this far, maybe go back through a second time, maybe a third time, listen and, and write down names, uh, authors, resources that you can find that will be helpful Uh, to you as you navigate the days to come so with that said thanks for sticking with us this far appreciate you you joining us tune in next time for another edition of the just thinking podcast 
The Just Thinking Podcast, hosted by Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, is a Christ-centered, gospel-focused, and theologically challenging program that boldly and unapologetically addresses social, political, and cultural issues from a biblical worldview. With an international listenership that stretches from the United States and Canada to Romania, Nicaragua, and Mongolia, the Just Thinking Podcast breaks through all ethnic, geographic, social, and cultural barriers to bring the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the issues confronting His church and His people. Subscribe to the Just Thinking Podcast using the podcast app on your Apple or Android smart device, or you can listen online at thebarpodcast.com slash JT.